Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 129, recorded on a very special date, November 6th of 2020. And that date is special because episode number one of Photo Geek Weekly was recorded on November 6th of 2017. So this marks the third anniversary of this podcast where I have been opining about photo geekery nonsensical stuff for three years now and nobody has told me to stop. So I'm not going to stop and it's just going to keep on going. We're going to have a lot of fun with this as it keeps continuing. Uh, And to have fun on this episode of the podcast, I have with me a man who might be sleep deprived, but his opinions are still very valid. And his name is Steve Brazel. Steve, how are you doing? I'm doing really good, Don. How are you? It's good to see you. I'm I'm doing great. Uh, and, And why might you be lacking sleep? I'm lacking sleep because today was iPhone order day. And I must say, it used to be iPhone pre-order day was at midnight Pacific time. So we had to stay up late, back east, 3 a.m. They had to get up really early. Now it's 5 a.m. Pacific time and 8 a.m. Eastern time. So they just get a full night's sleep, get up and get to order. Anybody on the West Coast is sleep deprived. But I did get my phone. You got your phone. I'm glad. I've been enjoying my my iPhone uh, 12 Pro for a little while, and and I was talking on it for uh, which for color two, is that? Uh, this, this is the, uh, the the gray, whatever they call the gray. it. Okay, um, but it's uh, it, it's a it's a nice neutral color, and really, you're never really gonna see it if you have it in a case. Um, and so I choose a neutral color, and and, and that I think would be uh, uh, ideal. Uh, I've been talking on the phone for hours today. And as we're recording this, it's 5.30 in the evening, and I still have two-thirds of the battery left. So It's amazing. Uh, it, it is, like even my 11, battery life is not an issue for me whatsoever anymore. Um, but I will say I am so glad they go back to the square corners. Or, um, well, it, they're rounded corners, but uh, the fact that the edges are 90-degree angles. That's, that's that- what I mean is like my phone, my my you know, 11 pro is completely rounded, rounded on the sides. Yeah. And yeah, and I, I didn't want to have another big phone that had sides that were just completely smooth and soft and droppable. Uh, right. I mean, I, okay. I'm coming from a red hydrogen that had these really stupid, weird grooves on the side that I, I, I say stupid, but I really enjoyed the fact that I never, right. ever dropped that phone in it had any a context. It had a grip, right? Yeah. And so when you make things super smooth, you just don't get that. Um, and, and so that phone is now being retired. Unfortunately, I might still use it as a stereo uh, 3d camera, but um, I've been enjoying the, uh, you know, reintroduction to the iOS infrastructure. Though I will say um, that earlier this morning, my phone was heating up for an unknown reason, like some process in the background. Had you been just, doing something with it? No. Nope. Uh, I mean, maybe uh, browsing the web or you know checking U.S. election results, which I find oh. quite the entertainment value right now. Uh, as Glad we somebody this. does. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, it was, it was minor. I didn't have any, uh, heavy app open and it was just sitting there without the screen on and it was still getting pretty hot. And then right. I did the iOS, uh, 14.2 update and, and now it's been fine. Um, but let's not get uh, down that rabbit hole of, of, of well, but let me just add 14.2 has, I think 24 security patches in it, hundred new emojis and six new wallpapers. So the there's important patches. stuff all around. 
Yeah. The security patches are what I care about. That's yeah. the reason why I went back to Apple uh, because I looked at the track record and I thought, okay, well, this phone should stay security updated for at least five or six years uh, uh, based on uh, yes. how they're pulling their uh, former software forward or uh, hardware. And uh, I just... I mean, my, my business is, is my, well, my email, my, uh, my connections to people and everything else. And if that gets compromised in any way, then I personally get compromised and you just don't want to have that. Make sure that you keep yourself updated. And, and let's say Android does have security patches. The problem with Android, at least for me, is depending on who your manufacturer is, while Android may have a security patch, you have to then wait longer for the manufacturer of that phone to roll their own patch into their own OS. Uh, whereas Apple, they just they come out and everybody with a fairly old phone can still install it. But anyway, rabbit hole. Yeah. Uh, well, but hey, we're we're here for those uh, rat holes, rabbit holes, whatever you want to call them. There's a mystery and an enigma on the other side of them, um, and and there's a bit of a mystery and enigma to our first story this week, and and this. It came across on on DP Review uh, as something that I considered to be very interesting at first. Um, you know, Kodak is a photographic company, one of the oldest uh, that is still in operation. And um, when, whenever their name comes up in a press release or in a uh, whatever the context is, um, this one was initially interesting. And then later on, I just kind of thought, okay, well, this is just garbage. Um, so <laughs> I, I don't know if you agree, Steve, but uh, the, I agree. The, the, the title is Kodak Professional Selects AI-Powered Virtual Assistant Speeds Up Image Culling. Well, who doesn't want to have their image culling sped up? Uh, obviously, you want to have an efficient workflow no matter what you're doing. Um, I'm, I'm assuming, Steve, that you've watched the video. For this, and I encourage anybody um, that uh, is listening to take a look at it at photogeekweekly.com, or we will have the show notes that links to this article. But uh, what was the first thing that that hit you? Like basically slapped you like a a trout in the face. I, okay. I just I I, I want to make this seem like so obscene and ugly that you have to talk about it. What what was it? Oh boy, uh, well. Okay, so we're going to go that way first? That surprises me. I want to go this way first. And, and okay, there's something so number that- one, as I'm reading the article, I come across this part that says account required, right? That you have to log in because and it's this new Kodak based. app actually interacts with the Kodak cloud software. So then you select and upload your images. But yet the pitch of this thing is... It uses AI to call, and I'm quoting, hundreds of thousands of images, but you upload them. I'm thinking, excuse me? Now, I will, in in their defense, I've got to add this. In their defense, the app, according to them, it resizes your images. So effectively, it's making small thumbnails. That's all it needs to do its AI for faster uploading and faster processing. But again, when you drop the phrase hundreds of thousands of images, I don't care how small those thumbnails are. It's going to take time for the average person. Oh, yeah. We were talking about internet speed before we went live. Well, and when I watched the video, which it sounded... Oh, God. I mean, the, the, oh, n- number one, the voice actor the that video. they hired, the, 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 this woman, um, she sounded like she was computer-generated. And I mean... 
she may have been. She may not have been, but we're now in that uncanny valley where it's hard to tell. And if you're on, if you're in that valley, you're doing a poor job at a voiceover. Um, and well, and, and let's add the video was not a video of the actual product. It was a graphic. I loaded it thinking, let's see what this software looks like. Because they, they even tout in a friendly, easy to use interface. And then they showed me graphics. Well, the video that they have here showed no images they showed None. a bunch of gray squares and how you can categorize speeds. your gray squares according to different values because they didn't have they didn't even have a sample set of images to throw into the video that's how laughable this was as a product demo they do not have an mvp a minimal viable product uh because they can't show us in a video a pre-recorded, could-be-generated context with images in place. So I just th this is this is like a Kodak uh, Bitcoin miner to me. I don't know if this is actually owned by Kodak, and if it is, and they're not sublicensing their name out, which they have done a good number of times before. It does not do their brand the proper service. And, and it looks like it's on the Kodak Professional uh, YouTube channel. Uh, but is it really? Is this a tool that a professional would use? And I make the reference because if you're a professional that is running and gunning, you're doing events, wedding photography, et cetera, uh, photo mechanic is the tool right. that you will most likely be using. And if or a photojournalist. Photo it's not just wedding photography. If you're oh, sure. a photojournalist, you're going to use it. Uh, and so I, I looked at the pricing and I wanted to make a comparison here. This is a subscription model, right? Uh, so uh, l let's make the assumption that you're already using Photo Mechanic because it is the best calling tool on the market right now, okay? Um, so this will cost you $299.95 uh, a year if you go for the year subscription. And it's a subscription. Otherwise, it's $30 a month. Right. So you save two months if you go for the year, but uh, either way, it, it's a good chunk of change. Whereas if you already have a photo mechanic subscription and you want to upgrade to their photo me uh, mechanic plus, which has a digital asset manager and it has a lot of other bells and whistles that will probably be improved over time because it's new to the market as well. It's a $90 upgrade. Uh, well, and, and go, go back one, go back to, let's just say all you want is photo mechanic for culling for, I mean, this is for fast culling, right? If you want fast culling, Photo Mechanic, I think, is $160 periodically on sale, like once a year if they do a sale. $300 every year? I know people still using Photo Mechanic 5 that never upgraded to 6 because it still works. Yeah, yeah. And so I look at this and I think, okay, Kodak, what's your game? What What is the purpose of creating this infrastructure, this platform that, you know, we've seen from a Canon is also a really, I want to say a bad actor in this space where you create a service that never catches on and gets canceled within a year or two of its production. Um, and uh, I, I feel that this is kind of in that same boat, but maybe it's so that Kodak can garner patents 
from technology that they are then utilizing in the real world, or maybe it's so that some company that is already in this space purchases, uh, purchases this product and integrates that into their own system from Kodak. I don't feel like this is going to gather enough attention to be a viable product in Kodak's own hands. And that's just my own personal opinion. But based on their brand equity in this space, which is almost zero, uh, and, and based on the fact that nobody's asking them to, to do this, that I don't think this is going to be a success. Well, there, first of all, let's say this. Their brand equity in this space is almost zero because of things like this. So it, let, let's talk consumer space. I remember when I used to have family members share photo galleries with me, and it was an online Kodak nightmarish, I can't remember what it was called, uh, tool and user interface for uploading photos and managing you know, your own personal galleries. And it was horrible. At $300 a year, this is, like you say, geared towards pros like wedding photographers. No wedding photographer worth their salt is even going to look at this or consider this. Now we should say, you know, we haven't even described really what it is, right? So we should probably start what it, with Steve? what does this software do? Yes, it uses AI to cull hundreds of thousands of images, but it's based on two particular things, technical attributes and aesthetic qualities. And let's talk technical attributes first, and then we'll hit aesthetic qualities. Technical attributes, color, focus, brightness, exposure, contrast, and sharpness. Okay, granted. That's not really AI, to be honest with you. That is well, very simple algorithms to detect. It's an algorithm, and you know that's effectively what iOS is doing nowadays when it shoots nine shots and creates one from it. That, that type of stuff already exists. Aesthetic qualities, eyes are open, smiles, and this actually was one of the big ones to me. If my mom were using this particular software, then the third aesthetic quality they mentioned would be okay with her, centered faces. But if a, if a wedding photographer had the software choose every picture where the subject or the bride is dead center in the frame then it's throwing away all of the creative compositional things that now, that particular photographer say, did. Right. Let, let me say that a couple of dead center frames with a uh, bride, especially going down the aisle with the, uh, the, the pews in a church on either side. Hey, being there's nice 30 and minutes of and, the day. <laughs> uh, and, and, and so, I mean, that, that's something, right? And that's useful. Right. But that, that, is, that is a very, very narrow margin. I, I, as a creative professional, would frame up maybe one shot out of the day to really be a, uh, a portfolio piece for, uh, for that family. Uh, and that's it. I, I, why, why is that a necessity? Most of the time, it's going to be a bride and a groom. I'm thinking of our friend Troy. A bride and a groom in the distance, silhouetted on a hill with a tree on the opposite side. Is it going to understand that? I don't know. There are user options. So you can keyword tag. You can do star ratings. You can, do, uh, you can adjust the orientation, which the way they word that sounds like you're changing it from portrait to landscape with a yeah, crop. But I sense. think what they mean is level it. Uh, you can, but here's the key. You can, if you upload 10,000 images, you can say, I want 50. That's good. But you can adjust the priority of each particular criteria. That could be good as well. But then you have to download them. And so here's my question, because I didn't get this. And I'm kind of curious if you did. 
You upload your images. Granted, it's creating its own small versions to upload. Okay, I'll give them that. Let's say the pictures upload. It goes through 500 pictures and you tell it you want 20 and it gives you 20. You download those results. But here's the thing. It doesn't have the full res copies. It's only got the smaller generated thumbnails or whatever they are. We don't really know. So when I re-download that data, how do my star ratings, how do my keywords sync with my current digital asset manager? Am I downloading sidecar files and it's going to merge them into Lightroom? I need to know that stuff if I'm, current if I'm a pro. Damn, exactly. Because this is not going to be your entire workflow. This is going no. to be uh, a, a culling software that has to integrate with Lightroom or whatever else you're using. Uh, and so there's no knowledge on that. We have no information on that whatsoever. And and I think the the platform as it's been described is standalone and that kills me right away. Oh no, I don't think it's standalone. Uh, I think they intend it to be used with other stuff. First of all, it supports almost every raw format. They understand that you're you're uploading them to access this AI, I, I, which I don't is clearly too actually, high pressure to run on device. Right, but I, Steve, I don't think that they support the actual raw formats. Every raw format out there embeds a JPEG file in the raw file, and you don't need the actual raw file to access that. You just well, oh, to, I don't think it's uploading the raw. I, what I, what I'm saying is it's a desktop app. So you are dragging for both Windows and Mac. You are dragging your raws into the app. And it supports, it lists DNG, RAW, CR2, CR3, NEF, all of those. You're dragging those in. It interprets the RAWs locally just to generate the probably JPEG thumbnails that it's uploading. But but it's not even interpreting the RAW files. It's just looking at the RAW file and taking the embedded JPEG file out of the RAW file because that oh, is the I see easy what way you're out. saying. Because they're not they're not going to build a whole raw processing engine into this thing if it's just for culling uh, the images. So they just take that embedded JPEG of uh, whatever resolution. Maybe they'll shrink it down. Maybe they'll do something, and that becomes the the final result of uh, of what gets uploaded. And and to me, to say that you support raw files when you're really just dragging the embedded JPEGs right, out right. of it, um, that's it, it's misleading at best. Yeah, it's disingenuous at best. Yes. Uh, so let, let's, I don't know, let, let's leave it there for now because the software, it's not out. In fact, their demo video is, uh, yeah. is the demo video isn't the product. Uh, and it would be really neat to see it's them like, actually come up with something, you know, color priority, as they say, uh, that that's in photo mechanic plus, uh, th that, that exists there. They don't have the focus priority, the contrast and the face priority that I know of reading the spec sheet. Cause I haven't experienced the software itself, but this seems to be like, I, I remember, uh, working at an ad agency before I became a professional photographer and somebody was trying to sell us on video phones. And sure, they had a unique feature. You could do a video conference with somebody that also had a similar product. But I had just recently purchased an iPhone 3G at the time. And, and I thought, well, all Apple has to do is do video calling, roll that into their software. And whatever this is being sold to us is completely becomes obsolete overnight. Immediately it goes away. Yep. Um, and so, and it would have, by the way, the if FaceTime boat. did not end up encumbered with patent lawsuits, the intent Steve jobs originally said was to release FaceTime cross-platform virtually open sourced. And 
then they ended up with a ton of patent lawsuits. So, well, true, but uh, but but what, what I'm saying is Kodak with this professional select software is in that same boat as that video phone salesman that came to right. our office. I agree. Uh, and uh, you know, it, it, I'm not saying it's a bad idea. But as soon as a software that you're already using rolls in the exact same technology to your existing workflow, which will happen inevitably, um, you're gone. It just it, it fizzles out. We won't be talking about this again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. What, what just came out in Photoshop 2021? Yeah. Skylum had it a long time ago, you know, relatively a long time ago. Uh, and now Photoshop 2021 has sky replacement and it has skin retouching using AI. And there's going to be a point that trickles down into Lightroom. These things are all going to move down on the desktop. It, yeah, again. So for me, go watch the video because it's just funny that they're doing a product with something that looks like it was made, you know, on an <laughs> iPad. Uh, but it's not. Yeah, you're not going to. Yeah, it. uh, it's not going okay. to happen, man. Well, let's go on to our next story, uh, which I will uh, presumptively title Something That Will Break. Um, Xiaomi uh, announces a retractable lens technology for future smartphones. And the Chinese technology company uh, has officially kicked off its annual Mi Developer Conference, um, MIDC 2020 in Beijing. And during the conference, Xiaomi has showcased uh, a, uh, numerous technologies and breakthroughs, including a retractable wide aperture lens technology for smartphone devices. And they have a, a very short video. It's, it's like a minute or maybe less, I can't remember, but they just kind of show an example of what would happen if the same technology that you have found in point and shoot super zoom cameras, where you have a lens that steps out in multiple levels, um, was employed in a smartphone design. And uh, I think that's all the preamble I need to get your opinions. Yeah. Well, first of all, here's one thing I'm not clear on from the article. And and it kind of surprises me from DP Review that this this is left out. It's a retractable, and, and this is specific, this wording. You know, let's be honest. These are marketing terms that are put out by a company. These are chosen words, very specific. A retractable wide aperture lens for smartphones. They're saying wide aperture. There is no mention anywhere in this article except when they talk about particular other features that Yami is coming out with. There's no mention of the word zoom, Right. Uh, they talk about yeah. a 300 percent increase in light input, 20 percent more sharpness and better OIS. But there is no mention of Zoom in this article other than they mentioned the products. MI10 Ultra Smartphone, which was a quad camera array and it had a 120 millimeter equivalent Zoom. But they don't mention that with this retractable lens. And so I guess really that's my question is, do you know? And I, by the way, I went and looked everywhere I could. And do you see anywhere other than the one with the 120 time, do you see anywhere with this where it's talking about anything, but it, it expands just so it can be aperture? I, I couldn't find that information either. And and that, that's problematic to, to try to invest in a system like this uh, in, in a phone that might have this feature because, well, we just don't have the information. But 
from a mechanical perspective, which is where I really want to approach this from. I love the fact that people have been doing like a, a periscope type of telephoto lens where it's actually uh, using mirrors to have the, the bulk of the lens horizontal inside the phone. Right. And then it shifts with a 90. It does or, make uh, for a thicker degree. phone, though. It, well, it does make for a thicker phone. Um, but in this case, I really worry that number one, any weather ceiling goes out the window. It's just, it's not going to be possible. Uh, but uh, when, when, when I have a, uh, and I've got a number of pancake lenses that fold up really compact. And uh, when I start up the, the camera on my uh, uh, Lumix Micro Four Thirds uh, cameras, they'll tell me, well, rotate the lens properly. Otherwise we're not going to get a, an image. And so you have to spin the thing to get it into a usable position. And from there you have a zoom threshold uh, of a certain degree, but you have to have it out and about, you know, it can't just be in its compact form and, and be usable. So I feel like this is going to be in that realm. I, I don't have any knowledge that says that it's going to give me a zoom level. Uh, but the way that they are demoing it with one uh, lens on the back of a camera and no other lenses there in the little prototype that they're showing kind of gives me the guess that this one will cover a, a number of, uh, of focal lengths. The in, in the video, there is a point where they're showing them exposing and taking a sample picture and they're sliding between macro and not macro. So it would appear as though that's the case, but let's just play devil's advocate here. If this is purely for that 300% more light, if this is purely for better low light pictures, again, I'm going to go back to the Kodak thing. This is something that will be antiquated in the Kodak story that we just discussed. Sooner or later, all that's going to be rolled into desktop software, right? Well, Let's reverse that now and say, now this physical thing is at some point going to be replaced by, if it's just the wide aperture, better low light, better low, uh, high ISO performance, this is going to be replaced by AI because AI is going to figure out at some point in time, they're already doing it, how to shoot with the noise and not care because they're going to be able to remove it in AI. So yep. this is antiquated to begin with. And if you look at the picture, like you say, it's actually the thumbnail of the video, it's not just that it's one lens on the back of this phone. The lens itself is small, but the supporting architecture that surrounds it eats up a full width of half the back of a phone. It's dead yep. center here, but if you look at it, it's about half the width of the phone. There's no way you're going to do a camera array with this. I just don't see that happening. Well, especially um, because the, the, the amount of space inside the uh, inside the phone itself that this is going to take up. I mean, that's eating up space for other things. Battery. For, for, for battery, uh, but but also for other electronical, uh, electronical, that's a word. Battery. Uh, for, <laughs> for components. Um, and Did I mention, uh, it, did I mention battery? Yeah, I, I, I don't think you did, Steve. Could you mention okay. that again, please? Just, yeah. <laughs> uh, but the, the idea here um, is that you want to get better optics in a phone. And that's not a new concept, but I don't think you're going to get there by having a lens that extends out from the back. Because what happens if that's just like a, a trigger that it, it needs to extend, uh, like I mentioned with some pancake lenses, and you accidentally sort of butt dial your camera open. And, and I, in the past, I've gotten a bunch of black photos on my photo stream because I somehow activated the phone in my pocket. Or random screenshots from nowhere. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And and so who kn <laughs> and what happens if you randomly pop out this lens and then you sit down? 
uh, and you just crush oh, it. Oh, right in your so back there, pocket. So there's a lot of of breakage that could happen, or um, the Canon 100 to 400 millimeter uh, f 4.5 to 5.6 L lens. The first version of that was colloquially known as the dust pump. Right, and and I know it this because it was slide. It was a slide uh, mechanism, and there was a lot of air that got pumped in and out of that. Yep. Um, and it's not just the air that you're sucking in, you're, the dust and whatever particulate in the atmosphere. And that lens was never clean after you took it out of the box. Um, and I worry that with smaller sensors uh, and smaller mechanics, but with dust being the same size it is, that you would end up with some dust particles inside of that that really muck up your imagery uh, over a short period of time when any time that has to be active, you have this massive cavity uh, comparative to the size of the, the volume of the, uh, the phone itself, this massive cavity of air that just gets filled up with air and whatever else gets sucked in along with it. Well, and let me say, I used to have, I wish I could remember the make, but I used to have, you know, a point-and-shoot camera when my son was growing up to take pictures. And it was the type that had a telescoping lens, and it had the little automatic shutter door that when the lens went back in, it closed. Yep. Well, that shutter door stopped working. Okay. And you had to kind of do it with your fingers. And and I see that type of mechanical issue here. But let let me, again, kind of go to the positive side and offer a solution. First of all, I have long said that – because. Phone cameras are getting better and better. And with the 12 Pro and some of the newer Android phones, you're getting amazing cameras on your hip. But they will not replace normal cameras. When I say real cameras, you know, I'm talking mirrorless or or SLR, either micro four thirds, uh, APS-C or full frame until two things happen. A, better low light, high ISO performance. That can happen through AI at some point in time, right? Sure. It's not just going to be sensor size and aperture. But the one thing they're going to have a hard time doing is, or a harder time doing is, until they get a, a 200 millimeter equivalent zoom that's quality. I mean, a good high, it doesn't have to be optical, right? If they come out with a really good 48 megapixel sensor, which is, by the way, what that quad camera we talked about was yep. from Yummy. If they come out with that and the 200 millimeter zoom is to simply crop that and still end up with a 12 megapixel photo. I'm okay with that. But until you get good low light and a 200 megapixel, a 200 millimeter lens, you're not going to replace it. I think that this is completely going down the wrong road. No one wants that, a zooming lens, a physically zooming lens. I think that there might be value in creating a product that nobody buys for the, the patents and the engineering and the stuff that might end up in something more valuable down the road. You always have to try all avenues, but this would not be a product that I would buy. No, not at all. Uh, now We're in agreement uh, again. Uh, there we are. Uh, <laughs> let's... Let's go into our next story. We're talking about uh, high ISOs. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I pronounce it ISO often. It's ISO. But, and, and ISO. I know that you make the International same Standards Organization. Uh, no, actually, it's International Organization of Standardization uh, as the proper name. And ISO is, uh, is named after a Greek god of some oh. kind. Okay, uh, I just learned something. I, I misunderstood it then. 
Yeah, and I did too for, for a very long time, but, uh, and it's still ingrained in my mind. But let's talk about a camera that goes to the millions. Uh, we talked about a previous version of this previously. Um, and so, Canon's Oh, by the new- way, speaking of which, speaking of yep. which, I'm, I apologize for interrupting, but you did talk about it on just the last episode, something similar to this with this Aunt right. Pruitt. And if you have not, if anybody hasn't listened to that episode, Great episode with Ant, and the, in particular, the conversation on that particular camera shooting the type of stuff it was, even though it was two megapixels or whatever, uh, was a fascinating thing to listen to. Go listen to that one. Uh, well, thank you, Steve. And, and this camera can shoot at a uh, this new one from Canon at 1920 by 1200, so just beyond 1080p uh, with a bit of a stronger vertical reach. But Canon's new ML-100 and ML-105 industrial cameras can reach 4.5 million ISO. So we have a very slight increase. I mean, okay, so if you're at 4 million ISO, um, if you get one extra stop, you go to eight, right? You, you double, right? So we're at 4.5. It's, it's, it's a very small increase. Now, that's not talking about the the quality of, of what you get at 4 million on this version versus, versus the previous one. Um, but it's another box camera. And so uh, Jordan Drake will be happy that we're talking about more box cameras. But uh, this this camera, um, it can do uh, you know, 12-bit RAW uh, in one version uh, and TCC 422 10-bit output in another. There's different configurations, and we don't want to get into four, the Four different configurations, basically. Right. Well, and the, uh, the configurations are not just on the outputs, but also on the lens mounts, which was curious to me. Because I was just going to say, wasn't that interesting? I yeah, didn't expect so, that as I was reading. And so the lens it, mounts that even it's an M58 or an EF mount. Now, an EF mount, of course, the standard uh, platform that Canon has, has used for many years, but they're coming up with a new product. I thought they were trying to get away from the EF mount and use RF, which would have made a lot more sense for some of these bodies. Um, and then an M58 mount, which I'd never heard of before. And I Googled it and I could find almost nothing. Uh, there's like a couple of scientific companies that might make lenses and I'm guessing it's similar to an M42 mount, uh, which is basically a screw thread that's 42 millimeters. And this is a 58 millimeter screw thread. Uh, it's as best as I could assume, uh, that would fit a full frame sensor in, inside this, uh, this platform a little bit more easily and matches the same footprint as the EF mount. But Canon has a new industrial camera at play here. Uh, with, again, probably around a two-ish megapixel sensor. It'll do full HD, uh, down to 0.0005 lux. Uh, and they say their maximum uh, gain settings is 75 dB, equivalent to roughly 4.5 million ISO. Now, um, this is, they say specifically, in spirit, it's the successor to the ME20F-SH, uh, which currently sells- $20,000 which sells for $20,000. Yeah. So uh, you would expect this to either replace it outright at the same price point or come in a little higher and over the next year or two drop down to that price. This is not a camera that either you or me, Steve, will own. Um, and like we talked about last week, sometimes it could be useful to have that sensitivity uh, for industrial, scientific, documentary purposes. Uh, but as I described last week, the documentary purposes that they were using the previous iteration in spirit of of this camera, they weren't even really all that needed. Uh, And so it begs the question, I got to ask you, Steve, 
what could you see people using this camera for? Well, and that's the thing. I, I would argue, A, first of all, let me touch on that price. There's no price on this yet, but I think it will come in lower uh, than the 20000 I think really? that's okay. kind of where they're going. The square is really interesting to me. But clearly, most of the specs that they're sharing are the video. 12-bit raw video on the ML100 and uh, 164 frames a second it can bump to uh, at 720 if you go down to 720p but the ML105 does 42210 bit so they're to me they're not looking at this as taking pictures in 0. 0.000 that's three zeros five locks this is for video so what do i see this well i could see this being used in space on yep. uh on you know, a, a trip to the moon or the space station or on the shuttle. I could see this being used in underground or deep underwater environments, mining or, you know, underwater scientific stuff. I could see it being used in labs where you are recreating those types of environments. But here's my weird thing on this. And maybe... Maybe their idea is that because it's replacing an existing camera in the ME20F uh, SH, maybe they're just assuming you know the use models. But if you're going to come out with a camera like this, one of your primary marketing things should be to list one, two, or three possible use models, right? So that people can, can make that mental connection to it. It's nothing I would use. The, the, the weird thing is, and by the way, this is the other reason I say they're fo this is a video camera, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, the the, the, I don't even think it can take a still. The connections on the back, the ML100 uses a coax express, and the ML105 uses HDSDI. This is this is designed for video. I yeah. just don't know many even industries that would use it. Well, and and that's why I think Canon builds these as a test bed for technology where they can charge an absurd amount of money uh, for a camera that really wouldn't come to market as a consumer device ever, but it is a buffer of their research and development budget where they can develop these sensors and they can sell some of them in this environment where they're developing the underlying technology into a consumer space. And this helps pad their uh, their wallet a little bit so that it's not just a constant drain by the time they get to a high volume manufacturing product. I agree. Uh, and so I think that's what we're seeing here. Uh, and that this becomes that uh, that early precursor for what we might see in further flagship consumer devices, which is why I mentioned that, because Canon is doing a lot of R&D behind the scenes to make this type of stuff work, uh, to make it a viable product at any price point, even right. if it's going to be something that NASA buys. And of course, NASA is going to get a customized version, as they always do, uh, for space readiness, etc. It was just so weird that this was, a, was an EF mount when there's obviously no mirror. Um, and it could have been something that jumped into the RF mount. And uh, uh, But they're not trying to sell new lenses and, to people that are buying it's in the product. same month. They just announced, what is it, three new RF lenses. Yeah, but they're, they're not. If, if they sell this camera to somebody, they don't care about selling lenses to that customer. Uh, that customer mm. already has 
a portfolio of optics. They're looking for a way to properly create an image out of that using their existing infrastructure of what would probably be unique, obscure niche optics that currently that could would be. need. That one I'll buy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if they, uh, if they have a library of RF, they can use an adapter, but of course you, to me, it would make more sense to do the, the, uh, to do the RF mount and use the adapter to go to, to EF. But yes, if they have cus- you know bizarre esoteric optics that they already own, again, I don't know the use model. I, I don't exactly. I'm I'm shooting in the dark here. Let's say, <laughs> good pun. Bum bum bum. Segue. All right. <laughs> well, let's talk about shooting in the dark and needing more light. Uh, so uh, Young Nuo is a, is a company that, I mean, I use a lot of their flashes. They make lenses now as well and lots of other camera accessories, uh, camera uh, flash triggers, et cetera. Um, but uh, uh, based on a Petapixel article that I, hear, uh, that I see here, Young Nuo unveils an oval-shaped flash with a built-in modeling light. Now, oval or circular flashes have become much more in vogue as of late, um, partly because, well, why wouldn't you? I mean, you're, you've got an image circle that's circular. You've got catch lights that should be circular to be a little bit more organic. And I don't like seeing rectangles in people's eyes. And so um, Young Nu is not the first person to this table, uh, but it's a little bit more uh, oval-like in this design. It's not circular, uh, but it's slightly more towards that, that realm. And it is the YN650EX-RF. And I don't know if RF is a signal for radio frequency or if it's referencing the fact that it is Canon-based in terms of its uh, ETTL metering uh, for cameras that use the RF mount. But my, my guess is, my guess is it's it's radio frequency. It's because it is a 2.4 gigahertz wireless. Sure. Flash. Uh, now, I mean, we could go into the specs. It's 28 to 105 millimeter zoom in terms of how the, the flash head can focus its light. Canon uh, is the only system here uh it now what was interesting to me is uh if you have it at maximum output it's a two second recycle time which is pretty fast uh and nobody really that's uses not, these flashes. well it's fast it's not screaming no but uh, and that's gonna really, last for three shots and you're not at full power anymore this, this this is true uh although they have an external battery port which i love to see on the young new flashes even the uh the the middle uh product range will have these ports and you can easily just plug in an extra double eight bat uh a double eight a set of double a batteries of eight quantities uh my brain is speaking faster than my mouth uh like like the bolt the uh, bolt makes some that i own or whatever bolt even has a p12 that they that they make that has 12 double a's that you could or there's lithium ion options etc that would speed that up and so that's an option here as well um what was interesting to me about this product is a couple of things. Uh, number one, uh, it has LED lights around the outer edge of it that they say are modeling lights. And I'm not sure that's true because they're not going to focus the same way as, as the Xenon flash tube that's in the center based on its settings because they're right at the front where the Xenon flash tube will have some focusing differentials. And it would make a poor modeling light if you're depending on that for your proper output, you're going to still have to make some guesses, but it's nice that it has both. Um, There's no price. There's no availability uh, on this thing yet. Uh, I like the inverted LCD screen on the back. I like to see it dark and then the numbers being bright, which is easier to notice 
in the dark. Um, but the build quality, if you look at some of the images, and I pulled up the original press release uh, from them as well, and uh, it, it just shows this thing being as good as a Canon flagship flash. Right. And the young Newell flashes are typically in the high double, low triple digit prices, you know, from 60 bucks to 120, $130 in terms of what you pay for this, where the Canon um, uh, 600EX, uh, that's what, five, $600 US? There's a big I, disparity I don't think this in is, price. I don't think this is going to be like the normal Young Nuo pricing. I, I'll, uh, if I, again, going to be way cheaper than an equivalent Canon, but, and Canon doesn't have an equivalent in some senses to this. My guess is this is going to be 200 bucks, and they might get 300 for it. And you know what? If it's solidly built, and that's going to be the question, right? Yep. When you hold this thing in your hand, is it actually solidly built? Does it feel like a product that's worth the money? And I would argue just if it has the feel of a good, strong Canon flash, they'd, they'd get 300 for this. No problem. The, the interesting things to me, first of all, you mentioned one. You This is kind of like the, the image review shows. You took all my thunder. The, the <laughs> uh, inverted LCD is awesome, right? To, to, to have the dark background, it's also great when you're in a dark environment. It's easier to read. Uh, I love that. But the 24 LEDs that go around the actual flash itself are dimmable at 100 different levels. I but think what, what, what so, so in essence, you can use that modeling light to create your own kind of light and artwork. What they don't really say is, okay, the flash has a recycle time of two seconds. I don't see if I'm just using the modeling light, what's my battery life? Well, and they don't say that. Uh, we'll probably get that uh, when it's to market. But uh, to, to me, uh, what was really the groundbreaking element here? And, and this kind of uh, came to mind because I remember um, KNF Concept have um, a, a ring flash that can be either Canon or Nikon. And what they do is they change the software in, uh, in the flash. And so I bought the Nikon version. Uh, just to have something different in my portfolio, uh, you know, when I have students and stuff in my studio, which obviously is not happening this year. But um, the Nikon version of the flash um, does not have a Nikon compatible external battery port on it. And so I bought a version uh, of uh, the, the Bolt P12 that had the Nikon external battery plug because it was a Nikon compatible flash that I was buying. And, and I knew that I was going to try to use this professionally because I don't shoot Nikon. I also don't shoot Canon right now. But regardless of what camera model or uh, you, you have, the flash will work just fine in manual mode. I mean, it's, it's always the same. It just triggers. And so if it's manual, you're fine. It just goes. Um, but it was interesting to see that in that instance with a different company, uh, also a Chinese manufacturer, that the uh, the port to add an external battery didn't change. It was the exact same model of flash. They just changed the software the firmware. on it, the, or the firmware on it. Now, this young Nuo uh, YN650EX-RF has a USB port. And they don't explain anywhere what it's for. But wouldn't it be interesting if you could update the firmware of the flash or change the brand of camera manufacturer that it is designed to work with by replacing the firmware at a user level 
for a different brand. That would be revolutionary. Or, or if that was the external power port to just keep a charge on the internal batteries. Could be. Could be that. Or right? what could I be said. that. One, one interesting thing about this, though. Okay, first of all, it does TTL up to one eight thousandth of a second. That Using high-speed sync, yeah. But that's only with Canon ETTL cameras. Okay, I get all that, because it's a Canon flash, basically. But it supports Canon EX optical system. They only mentioned the Canon optical system, which was interesting to me. I would think that the optical system, you could easily make work with anybody. Yep. I so hope why so, did yeah. they specifically reference an optical trigger only being Canon EX? I don't well, know. Well, partly because there's probably that software behind the scenes that Maybe. is just they're making it canon ettl and they're just going all canon for this thing um but the point is that previous uh examples for myself have seen the exact same hardware loaded with different software that would then in turn allow people uh to use it on different cameras although the hardware compatibility of external batteries etc might be uh you know specific to the original uh source but that's okay. What if I could load up uh, firmware onto this thing that let me use it with a Sony camera uh, or Pentax, Lumix? Right. You know, you just have to create one product and create a different software suite for every different uh, manufacturer. And that saves a lot of money and gets a lot more sales in the process. And that to me is where it would be really cool if it was just a USB power input. Because what if this flash really, you didn't need to hook some proprietary, uh, you know, camera company bolt external battery pack, right? With a Canon yeah. plug or a, what if just like everything else nowadays, you could get the giant battery pack that you use with your phone and plug it in and that became your battery pack. That's what I want to see in flashes. Stop doing this proprietary thing three plug and make it USB or USB-C and just let anybody plug any battery pack in and have it draw power from that. And you're done. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, get to standards people. Like, the, yeah. In fact, I I'll be honest, it kind of surprises me that specific thing. It kind of surprises me as companies are releasing these new batteries and every other electronic device from a DJI Osmo pocket to whatever can charge off a USB port, including an external standard USB battery pack, that the camera companies can't even go there. I mean, come yeah. on. It's uh, it's a challenge uh, that they're just kind of stuck in their ways. And I I hope that third-party companies like uh, Young Nuo starts to you know get a bigger piece of the pie in terms of sales, and that gets recognized by the first-party companies, and, and they adapt. Um, they're only going to adapt if there's pressure on them. If if it's fine the way things are, and the sales are fine the way they are, why would they change? Right? It, you have to have some level of pressure, and it looks like a flash like this, if it comes in at a really inexpensive price point, might do that. Okay, but you just said something that is, if it's selling, then why would they change? And I think any CEO of a corporation as large as some of these companies that isn't looking down the road at what we need to do to stay in business ends up, we're going to go back to story one now, ends up where Kodak is. Okay, yep. so that's the reason they would change it, right? You can see it coming down the pike that proprietary is dying, everything's going USB-C, everybody's got chargers, everybody's got battery packs. A smart CEO of a third-party, when I say third-party company, I mean one of the, you know, like the Young Numo, 
that does that has the capability of stealing marketing power. They may not steal a ton of sales, but they're going to steal marketing power from those that are locking you into their systems. Well, and, and you say, you know, stuff coming down the pike and, and it took me until about maybe five years ago before I understood, uh, understood what a pike was. Uh, and you know, the, the, the turnpike system and, and the highway system in the United States, um, they use really different terminology than they do here in Canada. Um, and, uh, I always thought like uh, coming down the pipe, uh, or like a pipeline or what have you. And so there's a vocabulary lesson, uh, that I learned recently. Uh, but, uh, to, to your point, you know, it's a constant process of adapting. And if you're not right. adapting fast enough, somebody else is adapting faster than you. And and, and you're not going to, to hit the market in the way that is meaningful to the people that are expecting almost a yearly product cycle for certain things. And not to say that you're going to buy it every year, but you're going to see the advancement every year. And you might say, okay, well, I didn't buy last year's model because I had the one prior to that, but I'm going to buy the next one because, you know, I'm two iterations in and it's going to be a little bit better. I know that the improvements are coming every year and thereby my improvements two years, three years in are going to be that much better with the hardware that I'm using. So... Well, There's and you, you have to keep in mind, in business, small companies, right? The smaller startups are just, they could be long-lasting, long but the smaller companies, they can pivot quick. The bigger the company, the less quickly it can it's pivot, true. and therefore, the more important that forecasting of, of industry trends is going to be. So, yep. again, what it really comes down to is we're really lucky to live in a time where, at least in the photography space... There are the Sigma companies and Tamron's doing lenses and the Young Nuo's doing things like flashes and the other third-party flash companies out there because what it does do is, like phones, right? It's best that we have different phone manufacturers. Competition breeds not only innovation to beat your competition, but also, if you're smart, again, as a CEO, it breeds the willingness to say, what do I need to do, not what can I get away with? Exactly. What's the minimum I need to do as opposed to what can I do to keep staying ahead? And, and I, I think that's where we're at. I, I think we really need pressure on a lot of these companies to prevent them from being stagnant in, in their product offerings. And, uh, and we're seeing that. And so thank you, Young Newell, for making this flash. And thank you for pushing it forward for other people to hopefully skip beyond what you're offering. And you do yeah. the same and so on and so forth, because that's Agreed. just the way that we improve. Um, now, uh, before we get to our final story, which was just a, a late add-on to this, um, Steve, where, where yeah, can we yeah. find... You sent me four stories and then went, wait, one more. Uh, well, yeah, it's, I always like to end with a fun one, and I couldn't find one until the last minute. But, uh, but before we get to it, uh, where can people find you online, specifically your podcast, your social media handles? Where can people uh, absorb more of your opinions? I'm right here. Just, you just, I'm, I'm right here all the time. No, uh, the easiest thing is for me personally, it's stevebrazel.com. It's like the country of Brazil, but two L's. And then the podcast is behindtheshot.tv. And it's those same type of structures for either Instagram or for Twitter. So it's at Steve Brazel on Instagram or Twitter or at behindtheshot.tv. No dot in there that time at behindtheshot.tv on either of those social medias. And uh, you can find me there. I'm always, Always out and about and 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 having some fun. And we will. I don't do Facebook a lot anymore for 
for my own personal protest kind of reasons. The pages still exist. Some things cross post automatically from Instagram, for example, uh, you know, or an if this, then that type post. But other than that, I'm, I'm, I'm never on Facebook. So Twitter is, is pretty much my communication area and Instagram, my photo area. And uh, the links will be at photogeekweekly.com if you want to just find a concise list of where you can find Steve, places that he's using or not. <laughs> they're all still there. Del Taco at lunch. Uh, yeah. Uh, if you happen to be in, uh, in Southern California at a particular Del Taco uh, and you want to buy Steve a Diet Coke, I'm sure, or, or Diet Pepsi. Which I'm holding is, up is, now. Is, is it Coke or Pepsi? No, it's Diet Coke. There you go. Uh, then you can buy Steve a drink. <laughs> <laughs> That's why on my website, I have a buy Steve a Diet Coke button for just that reason, because <clears throat> I mean, podcasts don't make you a lot of money, but a Diet Coke now and then always helps. Have you heard, Steve, that uh, the, the Diet Coke, uh, you know, gives you uh, baldness? Yes, have I have heard. Actually, what's funny is the place I work at, the dojo I, I work at, I get crap a lot because Diet Coke isn't good for you. And my response is always the same thing. I have one vice that anybody knows or cares about. It's Diet Coke. I'm good with it. And I, I was joking. I have no idea if it causes baldness, but I know that you always keep your hair very short and it's yes. very receding. Yes. Totally uh, by choice. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, anyhow, uh, let's go into our final story uh, reported on F-Stoppers. 270,000 images used to create this photo book of the Sistine Chapel. And I left the price out of the headline there. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. I, I, I want to bury that because I don't want it to become obscene. But uh, I, I, I'm, I'm sure you watched the video, Steve, as you usually make copious notes. I, I watched the video things. and I did a little more research about it. One of the interesting things was if you go to the developer's website for this, which is Callaway, Callaway Arts, Arts and Entertainment, and, yeah. right? They mentioned that it was just published and released this book this month. There is an article from 2017 in Smithsonian Mag or on the Smithsonian Mag website specifically talking about this book just came out. And what's interesting is some of the numbers are different, right? They talk about a different number of pages. They talk about uh, a number of different things. Uh, it was kind of fascinating in that sense hmm. that three years ago they talked about it, but it just came out. Well, and, and, and it was four years in the making, by the way. Uh, and so that, that might be my book, uh, it's, uh, it's coming into, uh, a very long progression of, of creating the content. However, I, I, I don't want to put, I, I don't want to say that they've done a, a bad thing. They've done a phenomenal thing to create life-size reproductions of very, uh, very beautiful, uh, talented paintings from Michelangelo and many other, uh, artists. Um, but to just recreate their art in a book with some text from a curator, I would think that it could come to market a little bit faster. Whereas the book that I'm writing right now is up to around, uh, it's, it's over 80,000 words. Uh, and, and all of them are very carefully selected and modified and adjusted as I go through it all. Um, and it's still- Yeah, but you're, I, I think you're missing something though. First of all, they, they shot this, when you, and a lot of the details I got were not in this article. They were in the Smithsonian Mag article. But it was fascinating how this thing was created. First of all, it's it's gigapixel technology. So they are taking, they use 33-foot tall 
uh, scaffolding. And if you've ever been to, which I have, to Sistine Chapel, there are no pictures my thunder. allowed. I was going to describe been? it all, but please continue. Oh, no, no, go ahead. I didn't know you were going to do that. No, no. So they had to use scaffolding in order to get closer to some of these pieces of artwork because obviously they're very, very high up. Right. Uh, and telescopic and, and, lenses. And, and telescopic lenses in order to create, uh, if anybody's ever used or seen a gigapan, uh, it's an automated system where you can create a grid panorama of an image with a lower resolution sensor that ends up creating a gigapixel uh, or you know thereabouts, just a higher resolution version of the original image. And it's all calculatable and, and what have you. And of course, you've got to be very careful about how you're lighting these uh, uh, antiquity paintings. It might not be the regular room lights. You might have to build extra light banks in to make things perfectly even across the area that you're uh, that you're shooting. It's a, it's a technical, um, a technically difficult process in order to, uh, uh, especially for the high up ones, uh, to create all these images. And I know I've done art, artwork reproduction uh, photography before. Um, you want to create a version of the artwork that doesn't have reflections off of uh, the paint surface. And that means uh, typically the way that I've done it, and there might be other ways, is you polarize the lights. All the lights are polarized. And then in an opposite direction, you polarize the, the light coming into the lens and you cut out all of the reflections off of the paint surface. And to do that on a scale like this uh, would be expensive. But the thing about that is it's expensive, but it's not necessarily time consuming, right? I mean, you, sure, you have to have access to the Sistine Chapel uh, for the time required to, to make this work. And so it's not available to the public during that time, one would hope. Um, but this book is massive. Huge. Do, do, you, do you remember seeing what the footprint of this was? Yeah, yeah. And not just that, the weight. So the book itself is 24 by 17. It's three <laughs> volumes. I've never seen a book this big, in, 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 like in person, ever, yeah. anywhere. Each volume is 25 pounds. This is a 75-pound, we'll call it single book, right? But part of that is there's 822 pages. Across uh, all volumes. Yeah. Including 51 24 by 51-inch fold-out pages. I love that. Right, which is awesome. That's what you need to do if you're going to do gig. But some of these pictures, because of the way that they did them, you can actually see the artist's brush strokes in. But, you know, I touched on the scaffolding. Again, from the Smithsonian Mag, I found out that they actually photographed. Again, you cannot take pictures at the Sistine Chapel. It's not allowed. Uh, you can't have your camera out when you're in there. <clears throat> but um, they photographed in here. They got permission. Obviously, Callaway Arts and Entertainment got permission. 67 nights of photographing from seven at night to two in the morning. It ended up being 30 terabytes of data, which is on the Vatican servers. As you mentioned, 270,000 images. Yep. But here's where it got weird is the color matching to me was fascinating. They, they took all these images, they stitched them together, they printed them. And then with the actual prints, they went back into the Sistine Chapel, back up on the scaffolding, and held those prints up next to the original paintings for color correction. So they're claiming that this is 99.4% accurate. Again, they say, but that's pretty, that's a lot of work and a well, lot of data. Uh, well, okay, but 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 here here's the problem uh, with that is that... Uh, 
you have uh, uh, pigments of antiquity, right? You have right. things uh, that we cannot get today in terms of pigments in your printer. And, and to me, that, that, that's actually really important because, uh, for example, I'm just looking up a, a website here that sells some of these uh, antiquated uh, prints. And if you wanted to have um, vermilion, uh, which is a red color, uh, you can get vermilion. Uh, vermilion exists as a color, uh, but it costs $99 for a tiny little tube of this stuff, and they're currently out of stock from uh, naturalpigments.com. Um, lazarite and uh, and other types of pigments that might be blue, uh, they're very, very expensive, very hard to come by, and they might react differently in different lighting conditions. They might right. reflect different amounts of, of color. Uh, it, it could be a, a, a metamer, uh, which basically means um, two different lights or, or different wavelengths reflect off of it uh, and in, our eyes interpret that differently. Or it could have some fluorescence or ultraviolet quality to a pigment versus what the paper produces uh, versus what you know the original paint medium or the, uh, the, the canvas was. There's a lot of variables there. To say that you're 99.4% accurate, knowing that the pigments are not the same, and well, knowing that the medium it's printed on is not the same, and knowing that the light that it's being viewed in is likely not the same, there's a lot and of knowing not that the way you proofed it. Again, you'll never be 100%. So I like that they did 99.4. But again, that's what they claim because I'm going to go to to what I think is even more important than everything you just mentioned, which is true. And that is they held the pictures up next to it, which means this was effectively color proofed by eye in a non controlled lighting environment by an individual or set of individuals that have different eyesight than you or I do. So there is no way to really claim extreme color accuracy and be accurate but I'm going to assume, based on the fact that these guys even did this book, that they know color, that they understand color, that they got up on that scaffolding and that they're real. I'm just going to go with they're really damn close. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But, I, and we, but, but all of what you said, by the way, is the reason the book, part of the reason the book's so expensive. How, how much is it, Steve? Okay. $22,000. $22,000, and it's a limited production. Uh, I can't remember the total number being produced. Nin 1,999 copies, of which only, only 600. 600 are in English. Yep. It's bound in silk and white calf, and I didn't see the paper until I went to that other article. Uh, Fedragoni symbol tatami paper. I hope which I sounds said right. illustrious. Yeah, it could be um, somebody's... At a, it could be a guy named... Uh, Fred Rigoni that has a laser printer from Epson and he happened to have a couple of spare sheets in it. I don't know. <laughs> I, I haven't looked into that. I, I didn't uh, read the other article as you mentioned, but now I have to yeah, put some stuff on my, uh, on my Christmas list for my wife, who is a wonderful abstract oil painter. She loves doing this. And I'm, I'm now uh, stuck on this website. I can get vermilion, a 50 milliliter uh, uh, tube of vermilion for $129 US. Yeah, it's crazy. And by the way, I should. And by the way, we, no, no, hold on. That that contains mercury sulfide. It's not oh, something good. that you should really Always be good. using. Yeah, because uh, that's what eat they used some. back then. It's yeah, eat some. <laughs> uh, we should mention though that the goal of these almost two thousand. Why nineteen ninety nine? By the way, come on, just make it two thousand. You're killing my my OCD. 
but uh, their goal is to have some of these end up in institutions so that everybody can actually see it. And and if you go to the article, which is at, at Don's PhotoGeekWeekly.com website, the way I found the Smithsonian article was somebody mentioned it in the comments. So okay. it's actually in the comments down there. It, Perfect. Well, uh, I think we talked that one to death. Uh, there's not much more we can talk about a $22,000 book. Oh, um, boy. But uh, but it's great to see that people can actually push those limits, right? And 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 take photographic art. Well, it was really uh, visual art before that. But yeah, use photography to create something that is so pinnacally perfect, as best as yep. you could make it. Uh, and, you know, not many people do that. Uh, well, obviously, it cost a heck of a lot. And this is something that only the biggest, the, the brightest institutions in the world, the biggest libraries would be able to afford or private collectors. Um, it's not for me, Steve. Uh, I'm not no. going to drop 22 grand on one of those. Although, if I did, would you think, and this is, this is a, a final comment on this, would it increase or decrease in value? Would it be an investment that gets more valuable or would the fact that technology, the way that we can image things in the future would supersede the quality of this in 10 years, making it not worthless, but worth a heck of a lot less than it currently is? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, to me, it would, to me, this type of thing is always an investment, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a tough call. I would say that, uh, it would lose value um, because why? Because if they allowed somebody to make a recreation of that in the future, or if somebody just randomly 10, 20 years from now pulls out their phone and creates something that is as visually stunning as what we're currently seeing, uh, legal or otherwise, whether they allow it or not, um, you can create imagery that might be able to mimic the original artist intent through artificial intelligence and those algorithms and all the stuff that we're currently seeing hit the market right now, right this year. Um, would you be able to make your own a smaller version of this uh, that is, say, Except that you can't photograph in there. Well, they don't let you. That doesn't mean you can't. I, I, I mean. Uh, okay, so I'm just going to say, because I've been there, you are being watched. It's it's pretty amazing. Now, we got in really early before there was a huge crowd in there because we had a tour that got into the Vatican early. Uh, so we kind of, our tour had the room to ourselves, But I suppose with more people, you could probably just hold it by your hip or... And, 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 and the rules might change over time. Yeah, uh, you yeah. know, the, the the world is changing dramatically on almost a daily basis right now. Yeah. Uh, so uh, who knows what those rules will be? The fact that they don't allow you to take the pictures is the reason why it's so valuable. And you just flip that switch and that they let you take pictures because there's no flash involved anymore and it's just become a greater tourist attraction. Then the value of those images, as good as they are, becomes diminished. Um, Agreed. I don't know. It's just my thoughts. Uh, let's go into our picks of the week. Uh, Steve, I got something from you here, and I think it relates to uh, one of your recent uh, podcast episodes. Yeah, uh, this is a particular book. So on Behind the Shot, I actually just did an interview, and it's going to air at the end of November. Uh, it's going to be my second episode in November. I do two a month. And I interviewed this guy, and what happened was, the story is actually kind of interesting because, you know, my my podcast is purely about photography, right? So I had a friend 
call me up that, that brings a lot of Canon Explorers of Light to me. He deals with the Canon Explorers of Light program. And he had a friend that is a publisher that was publishing a book. And he emailed me and he said, hey, are you interested in having a Navy SEAL on? And I went, well, yeah, I would love to talk to a Navy SEAL, but it all comes down to the photography, right? I, I, I mean, my whole show is dissecting an image. So Navy SEAL or not, if it's, you know, if it's a Navy SEAL that had a point and shoot with him on a gig, okay, it'd be interesting. I don't know that it's a you know, behind the shot episode. So they got me a watermarked PDF of the book. And when they got me the watermarked PDF of the book, my jaw hit the floor. And I immediately reached out to the publisher and said, oh, yes, please. I would love to have this particular person on the show. And the guy's name is Darren McBurnett. And Darren is a Navy SEAL retired. And he, during Navy SEAL training, his 24-year Navy SEAL career, during those 24 years, he was a Navy SEAL platoon leader. And he was able... That was one of the questions I asked him during the show was, how'd they even let you do this? Because mostly SEAL training is secret. Oh, exactly. Like the first, first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club, right? There have been documentaries on SEAL training where they show some beach training and they show ringing the bell, and they, but nothing like what he's got in this book. It's insane. The book is called Uncommon Grit. Prices vary. By the way, the, his website is D. McBurnett. It's one R, two T's. And there's a link to the book there, which is what I've got up in front of me right now. The book is at uncommongritbook.com, uncommongritbook.com. And there are some just absolutely crazy pictures in this book that you will see. And we cover a photo from this book that specifically deals with drowning training how to survive possible drowning. And I'm not even going to tell you what the picture is because one of the things I loved about doing this interview and specifically they sent me, you can, well, nobody can see on your podcast, but behind me is the book. Uh, They sent me a physical copy of the book and he talks about there's, it's not just a photo book. He talks about a lot having to do with seal training. He mentions the band corn in the book, which we talked about on the show. This is one of those sets of pictures that all at the same time, which is rare, is inspiring as heck and just as uncomfortable all at the same time. It's just an amazing book. Again, prices vary. I think it's 45 bucks on Amazon. It's like 20 bucks for Kindle, but you can go to his website and get a signed copy or a signed copy with other stuff. I actually just tried to buy a signed copy. They only ship the signed copies to the United States. So Steve, I might have to plug in your address and you ship We've it We've done it before. <laughs> We've done that We've done before. We've done it before. Um, but $75 for a signed <laughs> copy. Uh, plus uh, I'm assuming applicable shipping, but, um, it's the, the, the book I cannot, I normally would not touch on anything that I've done on my podcast. Cause I'm just not that kind of cross promotion minded in all honesty, part of it's cause I'm stupid. And part of it's cause it's uncomfortable to me. So to me, this isn't that if you don't want to go watch the show, don't go watch the show. That's fine. Just go look at the book. That's all I'm saying. The yeah. book is, I, I feel like grabbing it and holding it up in front of the camera that I'm using. The book is just fantastic. And Darren was wonderful with his time, smart guy. And one of the things he said to me, and this is part of the reason I'm so excited about it, 
he does a lot of public speaking, right? So he's spoken for Budweiser and CDW and motivational speaking because of 24 years being a SEAL for all these big corporations. And he said to me, it's actually really nice to just be able to talk photography. Whenever I talk, people want to ask me questions about being a SEAL, but I'm not a SEAL anymore. And I really want to talk about photography and I never get to. So that was a joy to him, which was wonderful. That's a great book. And I will get my hands on a signed copy one way or another. Um, and so Mine's I, not signed, unfortunately, but man, it's so good. Well, uh, you know, I, I'll pay for it. I, I, some way, I just, I want to respect not only uh, the value of uh, of these these people that give their lives to to protect us. And, and I say us, I, I, I'm not American, but these people protect the freedoms that we have right. uh, in, in America, in Canada, in, in the, the free world. Yeah, it's, re- I, it's respecting the mindset that these, that these types of humans have. And I will say, I've been nervous very few times on my show. I was nervous when Trey Ratcliffe came on. I was nervous when Scott Kelby came on. I was nervous the first time you came on. Um, Were there's you been really? Maybe, <laughs> oh, very much so, actually. Yeah, there was maybe been three or four times out of 107 episodes or whatever that I've been nervous. I was super nervous for this, right? The guy's a seal. I just highly respect, you know, 90% of the people that go into this program drop out and can't finish it. And they're the best of the best. Yep. I just really, and to do it 24 years, I really respect the guy. And he was just so wonderfully kind. And so, uh, yeah, go look it up. Uncommon grit. Uh, my my pick of the week is very pedestrian in comparison, but um, you know I, I I've been enjoying my my iPhone 12 Pro, and uh, I actually bought the, um, uh, the the MagSafe charger for it, which is really great. It's sitting next to my uh, my uh, my bed uh, on the nightstand. I just kind of drop the phone onto it. Don't have to worry about plugging in a cable or breaking a cable, uh, which has always been a concern for me. And faster uh, charging than standard Qi. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's just a really nice system, but it's a magnetic system built into the phone. And you can adapt that in so many different ways. And companies are starting to take advantage of that. One of them is Moment. And I'm actually waiting to get a case from Moment for this that will let me adapt a macro lens uh, to it properly, which I think will be a lot of fun. Uh, but they have other things uh, beyond cases. They've got a whole series of MagSafe adapters. It could be tripods, but the one that I found most interesting, most adaptable, most customizable is simple. It's 30 bucks, $29.99 US. The multi-threaded mount with MagSafe, which is just a metal puck that will sit on the back. And it has three quarter 20 uh, standard tripod mount adapters uh, and two of the three eight uh, uh, adapters as well, because why not? You've got the space to throw them in there um, that just would sit on the back of your phone and uh, allow you to uh, throw anything you want on it. Uh, I, I find that this is really where uh, modifying a, without these weird clamps and stuff that fit on the outer edge, but just a more integrated system of having right. tripod or camera accessories be adapted to your phone uh, in a much more organic, natural, native kind of way. And so uh, the multi-threaded mount for MagSafe, I have one on pre-order. I don't have it yet. And I don't often make a pick of the week something before I actually have it. Right. But it 
if it lives up to what it is, and, and Moment is a company that usually delivers on uh, on on what they say they're they're delivering, um, then that's what I want, uh, and that's what I'm going to get. And I don't I don't even know how I'm going to use that yet, but it's just one of those things where in my studio, if I'm doing uh, a multi camera setup, I now have an extra camera. Um, easily support a camera on top, shooting down. Exactly. So I can There's, have that. In, in the center of my studio, I have a projector stand and I could easily have like a, a, a camera clamp thing just pointing it down, straight down over a table that I'm working on. And, and with the iPhone 12 Pro, I've got the telephoto lens. It can zoom in a little bit more on whatever I happen to be working on. Shooting 4K, I can cut that down a little bit if needed. That makes it a viable production tool for me, or at least I hope. So that is my pick of the week. And if you are going into the iPhone 12 realm, uh, you might want to consider buying one of those as well. Yeah, and like I'm looking at the whole page right now of all their MagSafe stuff. They have a car vent mount. They have a tripod mount. They actually have a cold sh- a tripod and cold shoe mount or just a cold shoe mount so that you can put a light on it. Um, there's some stuff in here that, you know, combined with, Combined with something like Filmic Pro, uh, which is a pro video app yep. that even lets you shoot from multiple cameras at once, you know, there are some stuff in here that would just be absolutely awesome. And again, it's it's all MagSafe, so it all works with, and I'm so glad that they brought MagSafe back because when they l- dropped it out of the, the laptops, I was really bummed because I loved it. I This is going to be awesome. I'm looking forward to it. And, get my phone and- next week. Yes. Yay, Steve's got his phone on order successfully, uh, which is why he has been sleep deprived. But you can't tell uh, by by this conversation because he has been on point for Can I give every a discussion we've been having. Yeah, please give. I had not thought about this. I heard about it when iOS 14 was first pre- previewed, and then I forgot about it. And I stumbled on something the other day that told me about it, and it's the it's called Backtap. Tell it's us about iOS Backtap. 14. What is this? And so what Backtap is, is the ability to... For you to assign a function to tapping on the back of your phone either two times or three times. There's a double tap or a triple tap. So it effectively gives you an extra button on your phone. And it works great. And here's what's killer because you can't do this. Like, you know, you, you double tap on the power button to bring up Apple Pay. Triple tap on the power button for me brings up the magnifying glass. But this one... I'm constantly in my notifications and I'm constantly in my control center because a lot of times I do my smart lighting from the control center or my Apple TV from the control center. So double tap might take me to notifications. Triple tap tap might bring the control center so I don't have to reach up to the corner and pull down, right? But here's where the power comes in and it's absolutely insane. You can assign this to various system options Various accessibility options, like you could make it where it brought the magnifying glass up, which is what I do with a triple tap on the power button, or you can assign it to shortcuts. Oh, and if you haven't explored shortcuts, you need to explore shortcuts. It's a, you can do amazingly powerful stuff with shortcuts, right? You can make it where if you double tap on the back of your phone, it sends your current location to somebody with a message that says, here's where I'm at. I'll see you soon. Right. You can do, you could have it open the camera and take a picture by tapping on the back of the phone. 
And again, you can do a double tap or a triple tap. And I'll just tell you right now, all you do is go to settings, go to accessibility and under accessibility, click touch. And at the very bottom is the back tap option. And well, it, let's hope they bring that a little bit killed. more to the forefront. Uh, yeah, because that it's sounds like a really valuable It's considered feature. an accessibility feature, which is weird. It should be its own area. Yeah, and uh, I've got a feeling that uh, now that I know about it after I saw your, your notes, I, I was experimenting with it earlier. Um, and I don't know exactly how I'm going to best utilize it yet. I'm still getting back into the iOS uh, right. ecosystem. Uh, but I, I've got a feeling... I, I'll find some creative uses to just give myself without, you know, trying to, to dig through menus, find something that just brings that right up to the forefront. And if it's as customizable as you say, Steve, um, then it's going to save me time. And uh, time is valuable these days more than ever. And, and again, I'm going to stress this. If you have not explored shortcuts, uh, Matthew Ken, Kenzanelli, I think it is. Uh, has an entire repository of shortcuts that you can download or, or look at, or you can create your own. And it is what you can do with shortcuts. And most good iOS apps have hooks for shortcuts as well, so that your shortcuts can access those applications. They can access pop-up dialog boxes to, like I have a shortcut that will send a message to somebody. It pops up and says, who do you want to send it to? I say it, and it just sends them that particular message that's predefined. Um, there's some really cool stuff you can do, and you can assign it to a button. It, That's fantastic. Thank you yeah, for that tip, pretty cool. Steve. And I by the way, that. I didn't say it at the beginning. Congratulations on, on the anniversary. Oh, thank you. You know, it's uh, it would have been more than 129 episodes if we had done one every single week. Um, but uh, I, I take breaks here and there. Nobody pays me to do this. So, I mean, really, you're listening at your leisure. And um, you know, it's, it's just a joy to sit down and talk about photo geekery stuff on a weekly basis, most often with you, Steve. And let's plug this. Um, next week, we are going to try and do it live. We're actually demoing yes. that right now behind the scenes. To we see if we are recording the machinery this right running. You could put this one live if you like the recording. I did make one mistake in, in this recording, though. <laughs> well, that's fine. Uh, yeah. That's why we're doing this, in order to make mistakes. Yeah. Uh, but the point is um, that we want to keep this going and make this, uh, I mean, maybe part of a commun community and, and get people more interactive as we're talking about this stuff. So uh, if you like the podcast, uh, please let me know uh, stories that you might want to hear about guests you might want to have on or any interactions, commentary, opinions whatsoever. Uh, we will have something to talk about. Don't forget to mention, uh, I'll let you do it. Our image critique coming up. Uh, next week with Alistair Jolly of Oh, do you mention it? You've already started. Please continue well, on. Don and I it do will a happen monthly just prior to our live show. Right, we're going to live stream afterwards, which is why we don't know the exact time of the live stream, but it's probably going to be where where it will be scheduled when he schedules the video. But Alistair Jolly is the global marketing manager for Flickr and SmugMug, an amazing photographer. I actually had him on behind the shot with one of his landscape shots. And very, very smart guy. He has his, He's the host, if you've ever seen Smug Mug Live. He's the host of Smug Mug Live. But he's going to be our guest host on the Critique Show next Friday. Uh, which, what's the date next Friday? I got to think now. Uh, Time is so fluid to me. 13th. Should be 13th. <laughs> yes, it should And be. it's going to be at 1 p.m. Pacific time. And uh, you, all you got to do is go over to Flickr, sign up for a Flickr account. It can be the free account. Submit your images to the Flickr group. And, and that's just playing in the pool. Join the community, have some fun. We're not going to critique those. 
if you want them critiqued, we need to know you're willing to have that done. And so all you got to do at that point is put the Flickr tag, not a hashtag, but the Flickr tag, BTS critique. That's what we search for. That's kind of you're giving us permission to use it in a show to critique it. And then we do the critique show and we stream it live to the Behind the Shot YouTube channel. Don and I always with a with a third guest, different rotating third guest. I'm so now. glad we have a, a third so, guest now on. It's, it's, it's changed fun everything. to have that opinion. Yeah. Changed everything, yeah. Uh, and, and so thank you, everybody, for listening to Photo Geek Weekly and tune in next week both to the Behind the Shot Critique Show and to Photo Geek Weekly Live when we do that, which will be an experiment. I'm not going to promise it's going to be a success, but the recording will always be. I've got that in the can uh, as a side system. So if you want to be a part of the experiment, if you want to see how it works, and if you have an opinion as we're talking that you want to discuss, uh, we'll listen. We'll be there, and it'll be part of the conversation. So with all that said, thank you for listening to this rambling bunch of nonsense that hopefully makes sense to you guys because it did make sense to me and it's time to stay in and shoot. Mm-hmm.